Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? I'm alright, thanks Ed. How are you? I'm good, yes. Uh, had a somewhat odd week because, as I'm sure a lot of people know, I live in Florida and we were expecting to get very badly hit by Hurricane Dorian and... Uh, you know, we didn't talk about this on air last week, but you and I recorded last week's episode a day early because I was concerned about <laughs> you know, the the storm possibly hitting and knocking out the power, or the power staying on and me having to record with like 170 mile an hour winds kind of blaring in the background, which I'm I'm going to assume wouldn't have been great for the for the uh, the ambiance of the podcast. And it ended up not really hitting us. Um, it, it it was a very unpredictable storm. Ended up slowing down a lot, so it it didn't hit on the day that it was expected to hit. And then it veered north, and you know, other than a few coastal areas getting lashed by by rain and some kind of high winds, it was it largely didn't affect us. And it was just it was just very very strange because for the days leading up to it, it was you know lots of people going out and buying supplies and everyone at my work, you know, kind of talking about their plans and how they prepared and how like everyone kind of having a jokey kind of like, oh, we've got no water in, ha ha ha, well, we'll have to drink LaCroix or uh, <laughs> uh, you know, saying everyone they're just going to be drinking Budweiser or whatever they had in and everyone also being kind of like, yeah, this storm looks really bad and if it hits, it could be very bad for everyone. <laughs> And you know, there's that there's that kind of uneasiness, and then you know, just a tension as everyone was was waiting to find out if it would hit us, and then it didn't hit at all, and everyone you know went back in after our offices opened up on Thursday, and it was just like everyone had had a really really long weekend, and it was yeah, it was a, a super strange week for me, especially then, <laughs> only having to work for two days, and now you know I'm I'm off on holiday for two weeks, so it's been it's been a really unsettling <laughs> couple of days. Well, I'm really glad you've got a couple of weeks off to recover <laughs> from yeah. yes, deep unsettlement and threat to ambiance because ambiance is mm. definitely that's our top line for yeah. every podcast is ambiance. And when I get back, I have a lot of bottled water to get through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you finished all of your LaCroix, didn't you? So, mm, Yeah. So we'll go on to the, the film news for this week. And uh, it's been a fairly quiet week, I think, mainly because everyone's up at film festivals. You know, people have been at Toronto and Venice. Uh, I guess the, the, the Venice Film Festival Awards have been announced uh, have been announced in the last hour or so. And we haven't got all of them, I don't think, but it was just announced that Joker has won the Golden Lion, oh. which, uh, yeah, that's kind of my thoughts. And obviously, neither of us have seen the movie. We both have seen the trailer and uh, I certainly have read synopsises of the script for the movie, which make it sound deeply unappealing. Yeah, it could it could in execution turn out to be 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 good. But, you know, I've not got a great belief that Todd Phillips will be able to turn out a, a kind of a great masterpiece of cinema, uh, especially one that just seems to be ripping off another masterpiece of cinema in uh, The King of Comedy. But yeah, that's that's a weird one. Um, I think it has to be said that's not, that's not an outcome that uh, I expected even when the movie 
debuted a few days ago and got um, some, some much mocked raves. This news was just announced and I'm still processing it and it's just mm. any... Oh, hang on. I might need to just collect. I don't, I'm not even sure I have thoughts because I do just have immediate sounds as reactions. <laughs> um, I mean, see, the thing is about Venice, I have been there once as a city. I think it's beautiful. Um, mm. I am, you know, this whole rise of fascism that seems to be happening again, Ed. Yeah, I'm a little familiar. Yeah, you're. Being in Florida, I'm not sure if you're aware mm. <laughs> of uh, rise of fascism, and it seems like Venice is going back to its roots in the worst mm. possible way. And by Venice's roots, I mean the film festival, seeming as it was created um, by an avid fascist who had been Mussolini's mm. minister of finance. Why should I be so surprised and saddened that um, incel-friendly Joker? Yeah. And uh, and Polanski is still being awarded, but you know, here we go. Apparently, oh, I mean, the, I don't know enough about the rest of the films. See me. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see what else has kind of come out. And there's a lot of really strong European representation, but I just. I'm I'm still just baffled by the fact that of all the films to have won, I wouldn't have said it's the guy who did The Hangover or the still wanted, unconvicted, um, child rapist. <laughs> mm. There was a th- a thread on on Twitter earlier that I saw immediately after they announced that the Golden Lion had been given out, um, where someone was saying that apparently over the last couple of years or so, Venice has tried to steer towards being uh, more reactionary, not necessarily just politically, although obviously there's a factor in there, but in terms of you know trying to stand out from the other film festivals by maybe doing things that other film festivals wouldn't do such as uh, <laughs> recognising the work of Roman Polanski or, yeah, like you say, incel, incel-friendly Joker being awarded top honours. Basically, some doing things that will maybe get a rise out of people. Okay, so uh, so basically Venice's new cultural orientation is edgelord. Yes, yeah. Right, uh, okay, just, just so I'm clear. Yeah, it's a whole festival of Jeffrey Wells. Oh, God. Um, so our next story is the surprise announcement that there's going to be a sequel to the Tomb Raider movie that came out a couple of years ago starring Alicia Vikander. Uh, surprising in two twofold. One, because the first one did okay, but not enough that you would think that it would, would you know, get the green light for a second film. Uh, you know, it, it, I think it didn't do quite as well as the two Angelina Jolie movies, or certainly not as, as well as the first one did. Didn't make a huge kind of impact, despite critically being probably somewhat more well-liked. I know that a lot of film writers I follow on Twitter were genuinely very kind of pleased to see that this this is happening and you know, well, are excited to see uh, Vikander play Lara Croft again. So, so on a purely economic level it was surprising although i guess in in the, the era of ip it's maybe not that surprising that a studio would think well 
this kind of did sort of okay and everyone this has like really high re- name recognition so let's just give it another try and see what happens but the other thing that's really surprising about it is that this new one's going to be directed by Ben Wheatley and written by Amy Jump, who have made a slew of uh, interesting British movies over the past decade or so, including things like Kill List and High Rise and uh, Down... Uh, not Downton Terrace. <laughs> Down Terrace, just Down Terrace. Re- kind of really interesting genre exercises. They've never... They've, they've yet to make a movie on that kind of a big Hollywood scale uh, at this point. So to see them make the jump with this, the the sequel to a movie that only did okay is is surprising and, you know, kind of makes you wonder, are they doing it because Hollywood isn't really interested in what they're doing otherwise? Is it this more a case of, like, they just think that there's they have an interesting take on the character? Obviously, Lara Croft being a... A British creation, maybe thinking that they can do something with it that other people haven't been able to do. But yeah, it's just like not a story that I would have expected to 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 hear, given how the first film did, and given their past work. As soon as this came up on the short reverse shot group chat, I was baffled and delighted all at once. Um, I love mm. Amy Jump and Ben Wheatley's work. And we'll go on to talk about them quite a bit because they are definitely people who um, I don't think make perfect films, but make some of the most interesting films, Mm, even though they are capable, I believe, of of perfection. But we'll go on to talk about that for our theme this week, which we'll reveal very soon. I still haven't seen uh, Free Fire and I really want to. Mm. And I think that the more action elements of their past work... I think is brilliant. I think Amy Jump's mm. one of the best writers around. Wheatley just seems to get really expansive and strange performances out of people that you don't necessarily expect from them. Um, mm. And you know what? I mean, why not do a film that will probably pay them very well <laughs> Yeah, and continue to make lots of their own work and I don't mean that just in a selling out and cashing in way not at all because I don't believe they sell out we'll, we'll see what happens but I think they would probably come and bring something different to the franchise with some integrity and Lara Croft's one of the few obviously comic book adaptations have and franchises continue to dominate the market but I think it's really interesting because we don't often look at video game or computer game depending on uh however old I am, I am apparently, uh, which term you want to use. But looking at like computer game franchises, there aren't ones that do particularly well or stand the test of time. And I think Lara Croft, just as, a, as an IP, is a really interesting character. Um, mm. So I'd be excited to see what they bring to it. Do I have to watch the first one? Do I have to watch the first one? I don't feel like I want to have to watch the first one (laughs) how how direct a sequel is it gonna be um because yeah i'm not that keen on circling back i will i will for amy and ben but if they could just let me know that would be great (laughs) i think i think you're right as well in terms of laura croft being a very interesting pop culture figure um because you know she is a an icon, an icon who is associated with a very specific time and a very specific 
culture around video games if you think of you know uh, her hawking lucasade in the uk in the 90s or appearing quote-unquote naked on lads mags you know like there was this whole thing around no her way. where the whole focus was it was all geared towards a very laddie idea but the franchise over the last couple of years having been uh rebooted and you know they've had a couple of games now which have veered sharply away from that redesigned the character to give her more human proportions um (laughs) and writing that is more in keeping with her being like a real person with genuine kind of pathos and drives and uh, and everything basically have have done everything to make her seem like more of a fleshed out character which i think the sequel the, the the previous movie did as well based on you know things that I read in in reviews by um, I think it was uh, Ilana Lazic in Little White Lies wrote a very very positive review of of that movie that made it sound uh, sound really good and and does make me want to check it out at some point but yeah I think that that the the way in which that character has changed quite noticeably in the games over the last couple of years does mean that there is there is ample opportunity for smart filmmakers to come in and do something interesting with her and uh, I certainly feel as if Ben Wheatley and Amy Jump are two very smart filmmakers who have you know I've not liked every every one of the movies of theirs that, that they've made and even the ones I like I think have you know there there are kind of moments in them that or elements of them that don't necessarily kind of mesh together but I'm always excited to see what they do because they always kind of promise to do something uh, really interesting and giving them the chance to do that on a big canvas or a bigger canvas than the, what they've used to you know they're not just in a field with Rhys Shearsmith on this one it means that 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 is very exciting to me and also you know there is probably a certain degree of freedom in being brought on on a sequel to a movie that didn't do that well yeah <laughs> like they're not necessarily you know they're not, they're not going to get Russo brothered to death or whatever over <laughs> you know maybe the studio's being like uh, we're not that invested in in this one you know like maybe try and do something interesting we like your take on it yeah our next story was the release of the trailer for the movie mr america which is a mockumentary surrounding the quote-unquote character of tim heidecker it is the expansion of the on cinema universe on cinema is a web series that tim heidecker and his collaborator uh greg turkington have been doing on youtube for the better part of a decade at this point where they uh review movies and assign them a rating out of you know bags of popcorn and that's kind of the initial setup it has since grown to spawn multiple streaming tv series a murder trial which you can watch all of on youtube and is uh, is very funny and strange and it's this this really weird thing it's particularly in terms of exploring the incredibly tense and acrimonious relationship between Heidecker and Turkington which you can still see playing out in their social media presences which is always a delight to, to me whenever as someone who doesn't really follow that stuff super closely it's always funny to me seeing when they just start screaming at each other around Oscar season about whether or not The Hobbit is going to win this year or whatever <laughs> their um, point of contention is now. And the the trailer looks looks very funny. It's Tim Heidecker 
uh, running for district attorney of San Bernardino, California, but having previously been on trial for murder in the uh, fiction of the on cinema universe, that being something of a problem. And <laughs> I'm I'm fascinated by Tim Heidecker and and Greg Turkington's work. I think they are just so fantastically weird and I like the way in which that they have managed to carve out this little part of culture for themselves that they've kind of really kind of breathed life into and grown out in kind of weird ways and to see them take it to the big screen and have it be distributed by Magnolia who always kind of put out generally put out more Tony stuff but occasionally you will take a chance on something kind of odd and offbeat uh, is quite cool I think I am really excited to see how this works in a long format. And I think mm. like the whole kind of mockumentary, oh, what's America like? What's particularly when it comes to like voting and, and I don't know how much kind of like engaging with real people there's going to be, I guess, cause just mm. at the back of my mind, I'm just thinking of like Larry Charles and Sasha Baron Cohen and yeah, um, how, a lot of that very recent stuff felt like, well, it doesn't feel as successful as back in the day as like Borat and, and Bruno mm. because oh, I don't want to op- open the door on like, oh, well, satire needs to kind of flex its muscles a bit more because just lying back and saying, oh, you couldn't write this isn't enough. Point, pointing mm. out, that's that's just pointing out the problem. That's not actually being satirical, I don't think. So I'm looking forward to seeing how these guys tackle it and wrestle it to the ground probably with some <laughs> funky synth mad jazz going on in the background i just love that tim heidecker is just plugging away doing what he feels like mm. doing really i love his album as well working from home. oh his uh his heartbreak album they put out this year or oh a different one pretty i haven't listened to that one yet what's it called damn it i can picture uh, it uh i can't remember the name but yeah it's just like a, a collection of songs about his fictional divorce yes. <laughs> um, which everyone says is genuinely very lovely but obviously built around this this concept of that you know he isn't actually going through a divorce but he has decided to write a you know surprisingly heartfelt divorce record i mean yeah big divorce energy what are you gonna do <laughs> uh, i'll just look up what that album is called oh what the broken hearted do Yes. Oh, that's great. I also really like In Glendale. <laughs> that's literally like, mm. such a good album. The album is not a parody like his usual absurdist comedy and garnered mildly positive reviews. Mmm. Love a mildly positive response as opposed to <laughs> the usual absurdist fare. Mmm. <laughs> so yeah, High Deck is great. Can't can't wait to see it. And Greg Turkington as well. I saw him in Neil Hamburger guys mm. opening for um i believe it was tenacious d oh wow and that was one of the best gigs of my life because um i think it was at the hammersmith apollo mm-hmm. and genuinely no one knew who the fuck this guy was because neil hamburger hadn't really come across as a concept and yeah. to just see like the light in his eyes was like oh wait no about sort of 10 or 15 minutes in being like oh no wait this guy knows he's shit that's the whole point this is a kind of andy kaufman you know-esque thing here um but people were really not taking to it at all 
there were <laughs> there were cans flown, but Greg Turkington was just lapping it up. It was amazing. Yeah, Neil Hamburger is such an, a wonderful a, a wonderful thing to to experience. I've only ever like you know watched clips online or listened to him performing on uh, you know like comedy compilations, but I I can't imagine seeing him with no context before what is going to be kind of like a, an, an uproarious fun like rock show yeah like that's that's the, the exact worst place for him to be which therefore makes it the most perfect place for him to be exactly oh ed people were so angry it was something else <laughs> <laughs> every time it gets around to thanksgiving and people and anyone mentions cranberry sauce i can't help but think of his whole routine about courtney love which is one of the funniest <laughs> things I've ever heard. And he has, he has colonised that word in my brain now. <laughs> and our final news story this week is uh, we're going to pour one out for the Jeremy Renner rap, oh which no longer exists. The Jeremy Renner rap was an app that you could get on your phone that told you what Jeremy Renner was up to. It was kind of like... Uh, it's, uh, it's a a vanity app that was created by... Uh, I believe a Chinese company that does this for a lot of, you know, kind of like Bollywood stars and things like that. I think it's more more common uh, there than it is over here. But it's essentially just uh, like a a reskinned Instagram, basically, where people would post where, where people would post. Jeremy Renner would post things, <laughs> and people would get notifications telling them that Jeremy Renner had posted something, and uh, it existed for a few months, kind of pootling along, people posting positive comments at Jeremy Renner about whatever he's doing on a bike or, you know, saying how much they enjoy his, his music or whatever. And then, uh, over the last, last sort of two or three weeks or so, the app was overrun by people, uh, taking advantage of the fact that, uh, you could put any name you wanted there. You didn't have to just use your name. And if you did sign up as your name, you could change it to anything you wanted. So, uh, <laughs> I feel like there are a lot of Jeffrey Epstein's running around on the app at a certain Ooh. point. Um, someone at one point was going around using the name Katie Anthony, who was the the woman who was accused of murdering a child a few years ago, um, <laughs> and just just people using uh, the app to just wreak havoc and have these like insane conversations. Anyone I think who has been on Twitter the last couple of weeks ago would 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 see those conversations happening between between like people on there who clearly weren't the real people but just making it seem just completely insane and uh, if anyone wants to kind of get a full rundown on just how weird the app was uh, Stefan Heck wrote a really funny piece about it in Deadspin uh, talking about how uh, how he got banned from it multiple times yeah it's just it's just it's just it's sad to see it go because it, it has been a regular source of uh, of comedy for me just seeing people posting like the weird stuff that was going on in the app and the mere existence of the app itself was just such a strange delight um but at the same time the amount of attention it was getting as for people just like rinsing it for comedy purposes did somewhat uh <laughs> indicate that it wouldn't be long for this world because of yeah it, it, i think it became completely unsustainable too pure for this world ed that's what it was too pure exactly so we'll go on to our main topic this week, which is uh, wounded bird movies. Now, what we mean by wounded bird movies is not just Kez, <laughs> although that, that, that's a good one in the overly literal sense of it. Um, but 
movies that are in some way flawed, maybe movies that are not particularly well liked by the public, but which we kind of like take to our our hearts because something about them speaks to us. And this was inspired by the fact that uh, I noticed that the man who killed Don Quixote is now available to rent and, you know, that, you know, can watch now. It's out in the world. It it exists. And I haven't watched it yet because the sheer drama of surrounding that movie over the last 20 years Mm. of productions coming together and then falling apart both on and off camera, the legal troubles that it had right before it was meant to debut at Cannes where there was some question of whether or not uh, Amazon would ever put it out at all like everything about that movie was just so it just felt so cursed and there was such kind of hemming and hawing and such real real just chaos surrounding it that I'm, I'm kind of not ready for it all to end by watching it and you know maybe being disappointed by it <laughs> but um, it to me just feels like just like emblematic of that idea of a, a movie that has been for so much yeah <laughs> and had such a troubled journey to the screen that even if I watch it and I feel like it's not great I'll probably come away still thinking like well you know it got made and, and want to kind of look on the positive side and, and then also thinking from there you know Terry Gilliam's work more generally kind of seems to embody this genre in some ways if you look at something like the imaginarium of dr panassus which is not uh a entirely successful film in a lot of ways and i think it, it it has some technical limitations to it that really kind of hold it back but as a movie that was halfway finished when its lead actor heath ledger passed away the fact that it exists at all you know through using its fantastical premise to use other actors to fill out the scenes kind of makes it hard not to root for it a little bit you know for it to uh, you know kind of have a tiny bit of success because it was such an effort to to be made so that's that's kind of the the sort of movies that, that i'm talking about movies that you just feel like you want you want to give them a shot <laughs> because it's it's been so rough for them and kind of other filmmakers who i feel like embody this in certain ways would be someone be people like the Wachowski sisters who after a couple of early movies you know their first two movies bound and the matrix critically beloved in the case of the matrix wildly successful allowed them to do a lot of things in hollywood that they might not have been able to do otherwise there's a, a lot of their movies subsequently kind of fall into this vein where you think you know they're trying a lot of things but it's it's not all coming together and for me like something like the matrix reloaded to me kind of always feels like a wounded bird movie even though it was a it was like a huge success when it came out i think i like that movie a lot more than a lot of people i i really like a lot of the action sequences in it i like how they took the amount of freedom they were afforded by the success of the first film to just put every seemingly every idea they had ever had into the second one and even though i'm i I don't think it's like as like perfect as the first movie is in terms of you know just really being sort of a down the line success everything it's trying to do i find it hard to hate on it the way that like most people do because i think that it's it's hard for me not to admire the ambition of what they tried to do and 
the way in which they really did kind of take their shot at doing something really bold and ambitious when they had when they had the opportunity for sure because i would say that there are a lot of films that i feel exactly the same about ed and not necessarily ones that have had um a particularly difficult journey to get made even though obviously when you hear about something that's a really great idea and takes a while to come together or it's been through development hell it it just seems to amp up that expectation Mm. and yeah some people will be feeling like they they're owed more from a film i think now because of there is more reporting i think and in minutiae like you and i were discussing a while back about like things like sonic and and cats and all of these really quite high profile things where marketing departments think if we just give everyone every single announcement and leak things but then give people the chance to somehow take a vote on (laughs) on what the creative team have already decided i think even for, for me like a true wounded bird is not necessarily the journey to the screen but it is that exactly that mix of what is going on in the final product mm. and i really admire and often think more about films that don't entirely work in, yeah. in the ones that i kind of the little wounded birds that I let into the cage of my heart are definitely the ones where I can't really let go of them. And I think that's the same way that I feel about films that I really love and that I think are transcendent pieces of art or however you want to put it. Because I just think God loves a trier and so do I. And I think mm. there's that's where you find the most interesting stuff happening when stuff crosses and this is how i feel about amy jump and ben wheatley as we were talking Mm. about them um earlier i would say that down terrace and kill list are pretty much perfect films in my opinion Mm -hmm. i know a lot of people probably wouldn't agree with me about kill list but i think kill list is one of the most stunning modern horror films and they were just kind of really ahead of the curve in terms of, um, I think, kind of portrait of toxic masculinity that was actually really sympathetic and, and grounded and didn't claim to have any solutions. I think the full sort of cultish mystery of it was incredible. Um, I think Down Terrace is just so darkly funny and genuinely chilling. <laughs> um, mm. And But then I really love that they've, just done like I remember sort of reading interviews with Ben Wheatley where he was like yeah well basically once I started to get attention for the films I was doing I would just show them right here are the next seven scripts I've written which one do you want to do next like working with um Rook Films and and um, various other production companies and I really like that kind of it's not actually scattershot I think it's just some a creative team in that he and Amy Jump are interested in so many different things. And I think there's just that sense of excitement and like, oh, we could do something like this. We could do something like this. And I think there's a kind of, I really like that there's something really 
it's like an antidote to all of the preciousness and the pretentiousness that can come from nursing one project and going on and on about how you've done so for over a decade, Christopher Nolan. Mm. <laughs> um, I think there's something truly creative about being like, well, we could actually do anything. And it's something that I see in, you know, you look at Paul Thomas Anderson's films and mm. there's not really one thing that draws them all together. And so the two films that really spring to mind in terms of Amy Jump and Ben Wheatley that I think are far from perfect. But what is perfection anyway, Ed? Anyway, I mean, um, the ones I I found, I was really engaged whilst watching, even though afterwards I was like, what just happened? Sightseers in a field in England. Yeah. Which you could see as a kind of, rural double bill uh with with lots of weird stuff going on even though they take place in different eras of history and share a really sort of slight angle to the universe kind of humor and i think yeah, yeah they've they've just stuck with me more i think because a field in england as well was almost a wounded bird in terms of its actual like distribution and exhibition so i remember mm. so clearly going to see it at the Cameo in Edinburgh live as it was sync released online and broadcast on Channel 4, I think, all at the same time. So they were just like, you know what, we're just going absolutely all out experimentation here. And when you pitch it, like, you know, a group of Civil War soldiers trip on mushrooms in a a field in England, Mm -hmm. you know, as premises go, pretty out there. Has has some of one of the most genuinely terrifying sequences committed to film, which is Reese Shearsmith and his face walking out of that tent. <laughs> Can I remember much else about it? No, <laughs> but I remember the experience at the time, and I and there's something about it that still sticks with me. And I think it's because there is something that they had in mind that they still carried through. And, and committed to there was an instinct there was a sense of that they were they were interested in this subject matter and they were going to make something that they hoped got across that interest and I think it's nice that it's not kind of drawn under with a line and I think what a lot of wounded bird films have in common is a little bit of a sense of mystery or a sense of something that wasn't quite completed and then I often find myself being like oh well there's room for me to fill in what I want to fill in hmm yeah you're you're right as well that like one of the things about uh Wheatley and Jump's work that's really interesting is like like you say it's not like scattershot or tossed off but there is that sense of urgency to them that they don't want to be like so many you know like the British film industry I think can be very stultifying in terms of we don't make that many kind of movies and when you say British film it kind of conjures up certain ideas of what a British movie is meant to be and they clearly don't want to fall into those traps. Mm. They don't want to make a period movie that's about kind of like airs and graces, like uh, even though there are plenty of movies like that, that that are good, but you know, there's so many of them that are just like straight down the middle, middle brow stuff that, you know, gets made because it will play really well in America. Mm. <laughs> not necessarily because it's like a story that's really good and interesting to tell whereas you know field in england is is definitely not a movie that's designed to kind of really work well 
uh, in the Midwest or whatever. Um, you, I, I think there is a tremendous sense of energy and urgency to what they do. It, it reminds me in some ways of someone like a Joe Swanberg mm. who, you know, the, that, that desire to just keep creating. And Werner Herzog as well it's, it has a lot of that as well. If you, you kind of um, look into a lot of Werner Herzog's work, particularly in his most prolific periods in the 70s and 80s like he was just constantly knocking out movies he was constantly making them and there was a real sense that even though like he was knocking out some absolute masterpieces of world cinema he wasn't like overly precious about them he famously doesn't like to do blocking or much in the way of pre-production he just likes to get out there and film stuff and just go and i think that lends itself to that idea of you watch something where you think you wait where you watch something and you end up really finding those gaps in the movie to fill in for yourself. Mm. Um, I think that's really uh, that's a really cool thing about of, about Wheatley and Jump and, and some of those other uh, filmmakers uh, that we just mentioned. I think another to to kind of go to an example of a movie where there are you know it's it's wounded just in the sense that there are bits and pieces of it that are not don't exist anymore or that don't exist in kind of a great format would be the exorcist 3 also known as legion um which came out in 1990 and was directed and written by william peter blatty who wrote the original exorcist and he kind of wrote it as a work that was tangential to the exorcist it focuses on the uh the policeman character from the first movie who is investigating a series of murders uh that have kind of vaguely supernatural subtext to them and it's a movie that i think is is now most famous for a particular jump scare which you often see people sharing online uh which is great it's like one of the the great scares of any movie i've ever seen um but it's it's a really kind of fascinating movie that has a great performance by george c scott playing the 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 policeman character uh it's got a great mood but it 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 kind of doesn't exist in the form that blatty wanted because it was taken away from him um initially and recurred and they added in an exorcist uh, an exorcism into the movie that didn't exist before because they said hey this is an exorcist sequel we should probably have an exorcism in it even though that wasn't what the story is about and then years later blatty had the chance to create a director's cut where they added in they added in back some of the scenes uh but a lot of the scenes from the original movie only exist on VHS now. So if you watch the the Blu-ray of it, there are you go from these very notably kind of beautifully composed shots of of you know kind of like atmospheric stuff around Washington DC to a very roughly cut together load of VHS footage of you know Brad Dourif and uh, George C. Scott talking to each other in a isolation ward in a in a hospital and the roughness of it doesn't detract from the fact that I think it is a really great horror movie and it's really good as a exploration of one character's sense of dread and their growing inability to kind of keep the world at bay through what otherwise had been kind of like a sense of good humor and bonhomie with like their friends particularly because uh one of the, his 
the, his best friend in the movie dies at a very early point in the movie. So it's this real wonderful like character study built around these handful of really expertly handled horror set pieces. But, you know, the movie as it was intended and as it is imagined, it doesn't really exist. All you get is this slightly worse you can either watch like the 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 version that was released in cinemas which is like hacked apart but still has bits and pieces like good stuff or you can watch one that's slightly closer to what was intended but has these kind of real rough edges around it and i think both have stuff to recommend them but like i think the the roughness of both and that real sense of promise that isn't quite fulfilled is what draws me to it as a movie that sense of like man this this really could have been uh, a masterpiece to rival the original movie and i think probably would have been recognized with such uh, if they were given the chance yeah it's almost like those kind of film viewing experiences to me are like looking at a magic eye picture mm. where you have to sort of yeah. like physically watch uh, physically look at this uh, very specially treated picture in a certain way and then, oh, it's a sailboat. Um, <laughs> to, to see the sort of picture within, if you will. And I think sometimes if you really, if you really love film, sometimes you do kind of want to play detective. And, it, and it's not to kind of pick it apart and to dissect it. It's not, you know, deconstruction is something very different from destruction, right? Mm. And I think you do feel more involved and understanding how the films that are more coherent, if you want to call it that, films that really do work, it always reminds me how special and tender and fragile making a film actually is and how many people are on board with one project and you know, studios get a lot of, um, and, you know, production notes get an awful lot of um, criticism and like, oh, are they stifling creativity? Let's just say nine times out of ten, probably. But Mm -hmm. the story that always sticks with me is um, about Arrival. Mm. And Eric Heiserer shared the story of when he was adapting um, the short story. He produced this draft that had a really long section in it where Amy Adams's character, I mean, apparently it was beautiful writing, but explains the nature of language. And the producers were like, oh God, I mean, we, we, need, we need to cut this. And Eric Heiser was like, no, because if I cut this, then how do I explain this is that and this is that and this is that? And the producers were like, that's essentially the scene. Just just have her be frustrated. Like this, this is the scene to get across to people. And mm. Eric Heiser basically lifted that conversation. And that's what's in the final film is Amy Adams um, frustrated that no one else is understanding the nuance of her work. But through that frustration gets across the nuance of everything that she's trying to do. Brilliant. And I think understanding how there are so many different people coming together trying to do the best work that they can from differing perspectives I think is something that Wounded Bird films always really bring to the surface for me 
and you mm. do think oh you know what could have been and it and it helps it helps me understand what I'm looking for in a film as well for example I saw Pain and Glory recently mm-hmm. Pedro Almodovar's latest film I wasn't crazy about it at all but other people are loving it and to mm. me it feels like a wounded bird because there are so many little sparks to it and I love so much of Almodovar's work but to me I'm squinting being like but where's the where's my film <laughs> where's my right. pain and glory I don't I don't it doesn't track to me what they're saying they see in it and and I don't either um but yeah I just think it's amazing because there are so many different iterations of every single film mm. as well in yeah. terms of you know various different edits and that's something that I think is highlighted through director's cuts as well um the Donnie Darko director's cut is probably if that had been released instead of the theatrical edit that would have been a wounded bird film of mine um Mm. yeah yeah I think um probably the maybe even more than Terry Gilliam like the patron saint of wounded bird movies is probably Orson Welles yeah just in terms of like movies that great chunks of them are missing (laughs) like the the magnificent Ambersons being the most famous one or like a lot of the stuff he did you know after he kind of couldn't make movies in Hollywood anymore like his version of Othello or or Macbeth um or his version of The Trial where there's this real sense of like a great creative urge behind it all and someone who really wants to push what you can do with cinema forward as much as possible but you know kind of being held back by the limitations of budget i think a good example similar to the thing from um arrival there's a sequence in othello where there's a uh there's a knife fight in a bathhouse and the reason why it takes place in like a bathhouse is because they didn't have the money for the costumes that they wanted to use uh, originally it was going to be a fight that took place with everyone in full regalia and then they just didn't have the money so they were forced to kind of think of another solution it's like let's just have them not wear anything other than towels and it's like a great sequence that's like a real marvel and really tense and really exciting and it only came together because of the limitations that they were they were put on it and that's a very i think a very clear example of a movie where what wells wanted to do just fundamentally couldn't happen because the money wasn't there (laughs) and there was there was no real way that he could realize what he wanted to do but what we ended up with was it's kind of more fascinating for that for knowing that he was working up against his against these incredible limitations and still managing to come through with something that is is really great in places for sure like i think just mentioning Tony Darko there and then hearing what you're saying about Orson Welles there and, and various projects that sort of get announced and then don't really come through. I think mm. Richard Kelly's one of my biggest, uh, yeah. what would, what would we call, would we call them the, the wounded aviary? Like a, <laughs> like a source of wounded birds. I Bird mean, hospital. <laughs> oh, that's such a sweet image. Anyway, I'm getting, <laughs> I'm getting, <laughs> I'm getting distracted. Um, because, who boy does does this girl still have a very soft spot for Donnie Darko and is sort of refusing to rewatch it just just to keep it <laughs> keep it sort of perfect there. Mm-hmm. Um, but Southland Tales, oh my, 
<laughs> that is some and, and you know what like I remember watching it with my dear friend Matthew who really liked it and and he in full awareness of its flaws and he said but there's still something in it and I remember mm. God, how long is it very long yeah we, like two and two and a half maybe two, two and a half hours maybe hours, yeah and then coming to the end of it after that final doesn't Sean William Scott fly into he, the sky? Yes. Yes. So that shot, and then the credits come in, and I turned to Matthew, and I was like, "Yeah, I know what you mean. There is something in it. <laughs> That's mm. the frustrating thing. There's something about like truly appreciating the idea if you almost can't fully realize it. You're like, oh mm. wait, I can really see that that idea is quite complex, or you've got so many different ideas going on. And I think Southland Tales has some fantastic performances in it. Um, yeah and big strange ideas like yeah. you know the the whole bits to the killers of uh of justin timberlake uh singing the killers to camera yeah which is, is is really one of those things that you can only do when you've had this massive cult hit behind you and you're just being given carte blanche to do whatever it is that you want to do and you know what he went for it and looking at you mm. know everyone that's in it you know, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, lest we forget, back in 2006, yeah. was not the hot property film-wise that he is today. Coming off of Doom. <laughs> Straight off the back of Doom. Hmm. <laughs> Wonder if that, that almost sounds poetic, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> Sarah Michelle Gellar, I think, has never been better. Yeah. And And sometimes it's not... It doesn't mean that you'll necessarily get the most resonant or fulfilling piece of art from an artist if you literally let them do whatever the fuck they want right but you mm. will get something that reveals so much of them in a way that is at times truer to art and i don't mean in some bullshit like oh suffering way no 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 but but to understand what they really want to do when you strip everything else away mm. i think is just fascinating to watch always yeah i mean i i'm not a massive fan of of the film but um pain and gain i think kind of has some of that yes um that really does feel like michael bay even though he's working with like a lower budget than he usually does because he's he's not there's no transformers in it he that does feel like you are getting a full blast of his id and of what he thinks art is and what he particularly because he is like he has such a weird obsession with the coen brothers and mm. that's kind of something that permeates a lot of his career you could see it in like the fact he just constantly casts actors who have worked with the coen brothers in his movies and that does feel to be him going right i'm gonna make my version of the coen brothers movie um and it, that makes it even though i don't you know particularly uh like it although i might you know if i rewatched it maybe i would like it more but i remember at the time not caring for it it really does feel as if that is giving you a more sense of who michael bay is as a person or at least as him as an as an artist than anything else he had done even though everything else um you know he, he has his very distinctive aesthetic and uh you can tell what he thinks people like 
in his uh, in his movies in terms of his uh pornographic sensibility when it comes to uh both violence and uh yeah just whatever you can do with the human body that isn't actual pornography um <laughs> you like i think pain and gain really is like the example of of a movie where you look at it and you think yeah okay this is like a director putting a lot of their obsessions into a single work of art it's his vertigo in that respect where like you can really see uh you could look at it and think oh this is like a rosetta stone that explains everything about this person mm-hmm. so we end this episode as we end all our episodes of shot reverse shot recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will like as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week Starlet's flat series two it's an absolute mm. delight. There are three episodes on all four just now, which I think is also an interesting distribution choice, not to release everything in a one um, mm. as Channel 4 did with This Way Up, Ashling B's series, which is also brilliant. Definitely watch that. Um, so it was nice to have three all lined up to catch up with, but now I'm hankering for the next three. Um, it's incredibly funny. And all the characters have just leaned into themselves now. And I think it's always really exciting to see a sitcom in its second series because you've already established the dynamics and characters in the first. So you've got more to build on. You you don't have to explain as much. Um, But the thing that I find really endearing about Staff Let's Flats is that everyone's actually just trying to do their best but there's a good sort of sensibility of undercutting (laughs) as well it's not overly sentimental but it is a lot of young people trying to do their best and there are points where it gets fantastically dark as well I don't mean to say that this is all kind of like everyone loves each other at the end and no one's done anything hurtful (laughs) like maybe how Parks and Rec was back in the day, which is, you know, another ensemble office-based capers. No, 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 this has a... They've pushed the boat out at certain points. But it never tries to be mean. It's it's definitely focusing on the situation. And I just think it's got some of the best people in UK comedy um, bashing about just now. So, yeah, stuff that's flats. Cool. I am going to recommend the Alex Ross Perry movie called Her Smell. And I think I'm phrasing it that way because it's very hard to talk about that movie without sounding like a massive weirdo (laughs) when you say, I watched Her Smell. What does that mean? (laughs) That's such a weird sentence to say. But I watched the Alex Ross Perry movie called Her Smell. Um and uh, it's 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 wonderful it stars elizabeth moss as a front woman of a kind of riot girl kind of uh, rock band in c- kind of vaguely courtney love esque although there's not uh, kind of one to one parallels or anything it's more just kind of like the vein of someone who is in the public eye in a band in a very public way who struggles with the uh, effects of fame the movie takes place over the course of five moments from her life over the course of several years uh, in which she struggles with various uh, addictions and tries to 
kind of handle those and you know kind of like balance her life as a creative person as a mother uh, as a person and uh, I thought it was it was really really wonderful it's at times funny at times very touching um, for the most part it's just uh, incredibly uncomfortable um, as as Alex Ross Perry's movies tend to be and uh uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to what, to his upcoming um, adaptation of a Stephen King short story because he is just so good at making you feel on edge when even when all that's happening is a bunch of people are talking in a room which is what a lot of the movie is a lot of mo- the movie is like people in a dressing room talking to each other or in a studio and the tension just ratcheting up um elizabeth moff is is great in it it's, it's one of her her best performances uh i really liked um i'm probably gonna pronounce her name wrong but i think her name's agnes dane um who uh, plays one right. of the, uh yeah who plays one of her bandmates i thought she was was really great and i thought that their relationship felt very real to me as two people who have come up together have been part of this band for a very long time have a great deal of affection to each other but one of them just finds themselves unable to 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 handle the other person at a certain point and yeah it's just it's just a really really wonderful movie Uh, i think everyone should should try and check it out if you've enjoyed this episode of the show then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player fm spotify raters reviewers and recommend us to your friends it's the best way to help us grow audience you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast we'll be back next week with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me